Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten from XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're joined today by Michael Ritchie. Now, Mike has been basically on the East Coast at Williamstown, where he was the producer of the Williamstown Theatre Festival and uh, in New York doing various Broadway and off-Broadway shows. Mike is soon to move from the right coast to the west coast uh, to take on a new position as artistic director of the Center Theater Group, overseeing the Mark Taper Forum, the Amundsen Theater at the Los Angeles Music Center, and the new Kirk Douglas Theater in Culver City. And that starts on January 1st. Howard, can you tell us a little bit about the the, the, uh, left coast and what's going on out there? Well, I don't want to be presumptuous. (laughs) Welcome, Mike. Um, First of all, I think it's important for everyone to understand exactly how pivotal a role the Center Theatre Group plays in the theatrical life of Los Angeles. Certainly people in L.A. know it. But it is an organization that really, for the better part of the past 40 years, has been the major theatrical center of Los Angeles. The the two of the theaters have been in place for a number of years. The Mark Taper Forum predominantly has existed as a producing organization and is one of the major regional theaters in the country and one of the first winners of the Regional Theater Tony Award back in the 1970s. The counterpart, the Amundsen Theater, which is a much larger house, has predominantly been a venue which has booked and presented productions, including Broadway tours over the years. There was a period where for a number of years it was occupied by Phantom of the Opera. But the combination of being both the producing and presenting organization has really made the taper both in in a positive way and and maybe to some smaller theaters in L.A., not so positive a way, the 800-pound gorilla of theater in Los Angeles. And more recently, um, the Center Theater Group has added just in the past year the Kirk Douglas Theater, which is not at the L.A. Music Center, but as John mentioned earlier, down in Culver City. So it's... It's an enormously important institution, and Mike, you are stepping into shoes which have fill, been filled only by one man previously, Gordon Davidson, who was who was a founder of the Center Theater Group and has has been running the organization or running the taper, I should say, since '67. Um, so, welcome to us, and and welcome to that role. Uh, thanks. It's interesting. I actually, I, I had an Avis rent a car last week in uh, in Los Angeles, and for the first time, I got XM radio and listened to the Broadway station religiously, driving up and down Wilshire Boulevard, singing show tunes. And I decided <laughs> then I'm going to spend a lot of time in my car out there. I'm having it uh, put in immediately, and I'll, I'll never go without it. Well, uh, wonderful. Thank so, yeah, you for that. So I'm, uh, I'm a big fan. It's actually nice to be here. No, and it is interesting going out to, to Los Angeles and and certainly, you know, as you say, filling the shoes of Gordon Davidson. It was uh, one of the major questions I had in accepting the job, but it was also probably the biggest challenge and one of the most interesting aspects for me about going out there, at least initially in the first year or two of – uh, what is that role? How do you take over from a legend, someone who's who's run this theater and and basically helped to create the idea of regional theater back in the '60s? You know, he was one of the the, the great leaders that, that that we've had through the years, and uh, and really such a visionary. And along with guys like Joe Papp, he really established the way theater works in America today. So, I see that as part of the one of the huge challenges I have in going out there, and uh, one of the more interesting aspects of the job. Well, what's been now? It's it's a year since it was announced that you would be taking on. So, 
you were finishing your final year at Williamstown. We'll spend some time talking right. with you about that. But what has been the process? I mean, you are moving to the other side of the country. The nature of how theater works in Los Angeles is is different than the dynamic of theater in New sure. York. Not the actual process of the right. shows, but but where how it occupies a place in the cultural life of a city. What has been your process in getting to understand? the city of Los Angeles and theater in Los right. Angeles where you've lived a bit in your life but not not over long periods. No, it's been interesting. My wife is an actress and she's worked on uh, in New York and Los Angeles uh, for the past 25 years frequently bouncing back and forth. And it had always been on, on the table for us the possibility of moving to Los Angeles and I was always the anchor saying no, that we, you know, we, we had to stay in New York. Both um, because I was addicted and am addicted to New York, but also because of my my particular jobs. I, I started out as a stage manager and uh, uh, had a very steady career on and off Broadway as a stage manager. And I looked to Los Angeles and didn't necessarily see the work out there for me. And I wasn't and I'm not interested in either television or film, whereas my wife as an actress can bounce back and forth. And actually did a lot of theater. She did a lot of theater in L.A. So it's funny. For so many years, it's, it's been up for grabs the possibility of going out there and never really discussed until this opportunity came along. And when it came, I was actually very surprised at my interest and my intrigue in going out there because with Williamstown, I had for all practical purposes the perfect job. I was able to produce at a very high-end theater three months out of the year in, in an idyllic spot in Williamstown, Massachusetts – working with some of the best people that work in the business. It was basically we drew from New York and Los Angeles for our talent. We had the best playwrights and actors and directors and designers there. And I also got to live in New York for nine months out of the year and and uh, and, and hold down a job here, you know, that particular job of producing for, for Williamstown, doing all the planning and the fundraising, um, meeting with the artists. So it was really an idyllic situation. So the idea of moving to... Th- to Los Angeles to work in the theater surprised me. And as I said, I was intrigued by it. And the more I thought about it, the more I became interested in it for a lot of different reasons. And and I think one of them is that I think Los Angeles is a much, much, much better theater town than it ever gets credit for or that it ever gives itself credit for. You know, it's it's dispersed. It doesn't have that central location like we have here on Broadway or the West End. But there's a, a, a lot of active theaters out there, and we are the granddaddy. Um, we are the 800-pound gorilla. Uh, but with that, I think that, you know, in, in thinking about that, I thought there was something intriguing about that perspective in that we might be able to help out a lot of the smaller theaters in a different way. We might become an umbrella organization and bring some of the, the tools that they don't have out there that will help their companies grow in marketing, in development, in in public relations. There's a lot of talent out there and there's a lot of eagerness for theater. You look at South Coast Rep, you look at the Pasadena Playhouse, uh, you look at the Geffen, you look at a lot of the smaller, the Actors Gang, the Aquila Company, a lot of the smaller companies out there, Cornerstone, East-West Players. It's a really active very active uh, theater community. So uh, I'm interested in going out there and finding out why the perception is out there that it's not as good a theater town as I think it is. And if I'm right, starting to expose that. And if I'm wrong, starting to grow that idea, to actually build that idea into the into people's minds. Well, Los Angeles is known, obviously, as a film town, film capital of the world, television as well. New York is known as a theater town. And when you were at Williamstown, Still are, but you know, Dwayne, 
dwindling days, you've attracted major Hollywood talent like Gwyneth Paltrow and Ethan Hawke and David Schwimmer and Marissa Tomei. I would assume you'll still be getting that sort of talent. How about Broadway talent? Will you be attracting Broadway talent out on the West Coast? Well, one hopes and, – and you know there is the question out there of where does the – where does theater play in the importance of the entertainment industry's life and the actors and directors who are out there right now? Where does it live when they're in Los Angeles? One of the great bonuses of being at Williamstown was that essentially we were there during the summer. It was during hiatus season for a lot of the television actors. It was a total of a five-week commitment beginning to end from first day of rehearsal to close of night. It was five weeks. So for a lot of people who had the urge uh, or, or the need to work in the theater, that was the best place to do it. They're also very protected there. We did uh, very high-end shows, and they were surrounded by their peers. And there had been a history there before I came there um, also of, of, of using people of that, uh, of that stature. So I, you know, I'm hoping we'll continue with that uh, in Los Angeles, working with both people that that uh, already live there and work in the, the film and television industry, but certainly bringing out Broadway talent as well. Um, there's a lot of homegrown talent out there that I, I think is eager to work in the theater, and certainly with my, you know, 20 plus, almost 25 years of working and living here in New York, there are a lot of people that I know here that I would like to bring out with me to work there. So I hope we'll see, you know, a lot more of that out there. Well, Williamstown, rather famously, going back to the days of Nico Shakaropoulos when he was running it, sort of had an informal rep company. There were those people who came back to Williamstown year after year, people like Blythe Danner. Um, and certainly that's continued to some degree mm-hmm. right through. You, you, you didn't immediately follow Nikos. There, were, mm-hmm. there, were, there was artistic leadership in between. Does that appeal to you as a producer? Do you – the idea of a family of artists or and, – and is that something you would try to pursue? Yeah, actually at Williamstown, we, we called them the family. And if you're there for, for five years, you go on the family page and, and certainly if you go back to, to Blythe and Franklin Jelly and Jimmy Nunn, Olympia Dukakis, Austin Pendleton, there are any number of them that, uh, uh, that were members of the family that all came back during my tenure there. It was very important to me to continue that that link. Um, and not just a link to the past. They were, you know, they were a link to the present as well. Uh, I, I would hope we're able to create some of that as well out in Los Angeles. I think there's something so unique about Williamstown, about the fact that uh, you know there's the college town during the winter, and then we land on Mass in the summer, and there are upwards of 500 of us that arrive there to put on plays, and there are eight or ten plays going on at any given time plus 150 to 200 apprentices and interns there. There's a life there that you don't get anywhere else that I think is particularly attractive to to a lot of those artists. And it became a home. For a lot of those people, it was the place they went back to year after year. I, and they also lived there when they went there. If you're living in Los Angeles, I don't know if we'll be able to have that same emotional impact on the artists that are out there. Well, physically, there is not the campus situation, There's not that, campus that, you situation. Ha- that you literally had uh, at Williamstown. Although you would like to have some of that sense of family, people returning and, 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 uh, and working with you over and over. F- funnily enough, I ran into Marissa Tomei last night at the uh, at Eve Ensler's opening, and she had been up with us this summer doing Design for Living and uh, had been up there in my first season as producer as Williamstown. The first thing she said to me was, you're going to use me in Los Angeles, aren't you? It's not over. And, and I, uh, I was – the words were leaping out of my mouth to say the same thing to her at the same time saying, you know, you're still going to work you know, with me in, uh, in Los Angeles, aren't you? So I hope that there are a lot of those relationships that exist and many more that, that, that we find that will create some sense of, some sense of family. Well, your, your 
Williamstown experience is a summertime mm-hmm. theater experience, and your budget is about three million or so. Right. In your new position, you're going to have a budget of about forty-eight million right. year-round, of course. What are you going to do with all that extra money? <laughs> that seemed like like a godsend. Well, you just spend it on good shows. Uh, it, you know, it's obviously a much bigger operation out sure. in Los Angeles. Those figures really sort of define what it is. You know, at Williamstown, we only produced in the summer, and even though we did ten major productions and multiple smaller productions, uh, we we only had a year-round staff of six. Out there, the year-round staff is well into the hundreds. Mm. Um, the scale of the shows you do is much larger. The the amount of uh, advertising and fundraising that you have to do because of that um, is all much bigger. So it's uh, you know it's a lot more money, but it's already earmarked and and, and spent in a sense. Um, one of the interesting things for me out there is the Armstrong Theater that you you mentioned, Howard, early on that it's uh, primarily been a presenting house. I've never had that opportunity to have a twenty two hundred seat house, a major musical house to um, to present shows in, but also to produce shows in. And uh, I'm really looking at a mix there of shows that are coming out on their post Broadway runs that are appropriate for the the Los Angeles or the Center Theater Group audience. But also to self-produce their standalone productions of shows that will fit that scale of production, and also to do uh, as many pre-Broadway or or international um, presentations as well. So that there's something very excited about going into that particular space that I haven't experienced yet. In terms of talking about the spaces, now you have these two long-established spaces mm-hmm. with the Taper and the Amundsen, but the Kirk Douglas Theater. Very new, just operating this year for the first right. time, really. Yeah. In fact, just opened a week and a half ago. For the first performance. Right. What what was planned as the profile for that theater? Is that a profile that you see pursuing or given that in many ways it's a blank slate, it doesn't have 30 or 40 years of preconceived right. notions of what goes on that stage, how do you see yourself using it? Obviously, we want to ask you what you're planning to produce, which right. of course you're not right. going to tell us right, right now, but – just no, it's it, it's interesting thoughts? because it it was a theater where it was specifically um, both it had been one of Gordon's dreams, but also the board of, of of directors of the Senate Theater Group signed on for it, as well as the staff. The idea of this third space, and uh, a lot of money was raised and invested in this old movie theater in Culver City, um, the, the the Kirk Douglas Theater. Uh, and the money was raised specifically for, for, for two different issues. One was new play development and the other was for family or youth theater um, being the, the, the primary focus of that theater. So it already has a mission. There was a built-in mission for, for those, those two particular constituencies. Uh, it's a beautiful 300-seat theater, very flexible in, in terms of its, its stage house. Uh, and and in a beautiful part of Los Angeles that's that's really growing. So this this initial season, the, the first season that Gordon is actually producing there, this season there are six world premieres being given in the space, uh, including two that are part of our PLAY program, which is um, performing for Los Angeles youth. It's our education and outreach, outreach program. Uh, so it really has its, its focus this year that it's almost running as a mini taper in that there are six full-scale productions in there with subscription runs. 
Whether or not I keep that profile in the future, I'm not sure. But I do know that it will be for new play development and for education and outreach and for family and youth programming. So I might do a lot more shorter runs or presentations or more cut-down versions of workshops or plays and development that are being done in this year. And I don't even argue with this year. I actually think it's a great way to inaugurate the theater. But as Gordon said to me, he said, you know, going in, he said, these are my plans for the one year I have in this theater. But don't use that as your template. Dream whatever you want to dream with this theater. I just want to get it open and get it running and get it on the map. And this is the best way to do it. And I completely agreed with him about that. So the great thing for me is that I get to spend a year watching this in process before I have to program or present. Well, Gordon Davidson, who is the retiring artistic director, is, has planned the current season, the 2004-2005. Yours begins next fall, I guess. Correct. What will we be doing between now and then? Will it be mostly creative? Will we be involved a lot in fundraising? Or? Well, so January 1st, it, it, one of the great luxuries I had that is that I was hired last September, which is two years before I have to put a show on a stage. And really, it's one year since my last production at Williamstown that I have that that window of opportunity to really learn about Los Angeles, learn about the artistic community out there, um, really understand the staff, how the place runs, uh, meet with the board, meet with funders. So I've been doing that for the past year and certainly it's accelerated since we finished the Williamstown season. I actually move there next month and, and take the title of – and end the job and the responsibilities of artistic director on January 1st. At that point, I'll be planning the fall season. I'll be in the middle of planning the 2005-2006 the, the season. Gordon will be finishing out his season that he's already picked um, in all three theaters. And so he'll shift to basically producing the remainder of his season. And uh, I'll take over the responsibilities of running the institution as the artistic director uh, and, and planning the following season. So there's, there's a lot on my plate. Even with that luxury of time, I can, <laughs> I can feel the calendar pages ripping off and, and flying past me. But it's interesting because there's sort of a – there's a baton handing off that's right. going on right. in the sense that, that Gordon is handing off to you. And, of course, your successor at Williamstown was just named a couple of weeks ago. Right. Um, what do you say to Roger Reese? Well, actually, we had uh, we had breakfast the other day, and he had about nine million questions, all of them good, and I probably only had about two million answers. So I think it's going to be one of those those ongoing conversations that I, I know the position Roger's in right now, walking into Williamstown, and he's been there. He's directed three or four shows there. He's he's acted in at least one or two. He's been up for benefits. He's uh, spent a lot of time up there. So he has a good sense of Williamstown. But the idea of taking it over and running it, it suddenly everything seems to be in a vacuum. So he and I have been uh, great pals and compadres for, for the past 10 years and it's actually – it's. Uh, um, it's quite enjoyable for me to be passing on as much as I can to him. And as I said to him when I when I first saw him after he had been um, after he had been announced, is that my greatest legacy there at Williamstown will be his success. It will mean to me that I turned over a theater that was in good shape that could be run um, uh, by someone else. So I'm uh, I'm probably his biggest cheerleader right now. I think that if. Uh, if he blows everybody out of the water next year, um, ne- next summer, it'll be great for all of us. Well, your title in your, in your new position is artistic director of the Center Theater right. Group, and your title at Williamstown was producer. Right. But it sounds like a lot of your time is probably spent on the business and business right. affairs yeah. side of things, fundraising and all right. that. Yeah. How, do, how do you like that? And how much time do you really have 
to spend on that versus the creative aspect? I actually enjoy, you know, coming out of stage management and, and never wanting to be a director. I specifically chose the title of producer at Williamstown. I was following two artistic directors. And I certainly could have had that title if I if I wanted, but you know, at the time, I really saw myself philosophically almost as more of a producer than an artistic director. Uh, so I chose that title, and even though they're almost the jobs are pretty much interchangeable as are the titles, one could choose anyone they wanted. Um, I thought that there was a lot of administrative work to do at Williamstown, uh, and and the producer fit better. Uh, that's certainly the case now. One of, one of the other luxuries I have in Los Angeles is that there is a, a great managing director, Charles Dillingham, uh, as well as a great management team uh, uh, that does a lot of that work. There's still a lot of administrative work and supervision of staff and even our artistic staff that I'd have to do. But also, as you said, the fundraising. I actually, going into the job originally at Williamstown, was leery of being the person to go out and raise funds. I didn't know if it was a skill that I had. I have to say that the the first time someone hands you a check, it's almost as good as the first time someone hands you a great review. There is some great joy there because you you realize it's a great check, of course, and and the validity of the review. Uh, but when you get one of those big ones, it's it's really exciting. And I actually, it's um, it's something that I found myself to have a a moderate amount of skill at, and obviously it grew over time. And your ambitions grow, and, and certainly it's a much needed part of running a nonprofit theater right now. And, and, and honestly, the you know the people that are writing the checks want to talk to the person that's making the artistic decisions. They're paying for art. That's what they're paying for, or they're paying for community service, and they want to hear from a leader what your ideas are, and they, and they want to have a trust in you. So you become a little more articulate and facile at it, and uh, and I actually enjoy the fundraising quite a bit. I really enjoy. The idea of running a business, uh, but that was a skill. You know, having been a stage manager, you really are a you know a, a high end manager as a stage manager for for you know very big you know businesses. So it's interesting to hear you say that the artistic and the business side go together, which. When you think about it, it's not all that strange because this is show business yeah. after all. Those yeah. two words have yeah. been married for years yeah. and the fact that the artistic guy is also the business affairs, yeah. the business side of it, yeah. very interesting. Yeah, no, I think it's a real – and I think more and more as time passes, we all start to see that and there are – you know, Charles Dillingham, who's the managing director, is is one of the great artistic voices out of the, out of the Senate Theater Group. I really trust his opinion on – on not only on the shows, but how they fit into the world out there, a world that I don't necessarily know. I don't know what the audiences are like out there. I haven't had years of experience watching them go through various shows. So, you know, his artistic opinion is as valid to me as any management opinion I would have to him. They're really interchangeable. It's, it really ends up being a partnership. Well, I have to ask, you've mentioned several times you were a stage manager and you went from stage management directly into being the producer at Williamstown. That's an extraordinary leap and not, not a uh, – certainly a standard career track in, in the not-for-profits. How did that come about? Certainly the, the move from – because the move from Williamstown to Center Theater Group, while the scale is, is vastly makes greater, more sense, yes. it seems very logical. Mm-hmm. What gave, what convinced you that you could do it, and how did you convince other people you could do it? Uh, it was interesting because uh, when when the job opened up at Williamstown, um, 
it was right at the end of a season and they had no plans for who the successor would be. And, and the, the board went out on a national search for candidates for, for, for the role of artistic director and had at the time a very high-end list of potential candidates. I wasn't one of them. Uh, I had worked as a stage manager at Williamstown for maybe five or six years prior to that. Uh, and as they went through the process for various reasons, either there were candidates that they weren't happy with or there were candidates that dropped out, they ended up getting to about December. And they finished with two really strong candidates who at the last minute for various reasons pulled out. Um, and they, they were left around Christmas time without anyone to run the theater. And I think there was a, a sense of almost panic going on because – we were already three months behind. Um, there should have been someone that was able to come in fairly fast. At that point, I think the board reached out to the family uh, of artists at Williamstown and said, you know, what are we going to do? And there were a number of them that I had worked both at Williamstown with, you know, and some of those actors that I mentioned. I'd worked with them at Williamstown but also here in New York. And, and I think they said to the board, well, if you just need someone, you know, to come in and, you know, stop the bleeding, you know, you should talk to Mike Ritchie. So I went and talked to the board and, and uh, I had five hours on a drive between uh, where uh, I was out on Long Island stage managing a production of The Ugly Duckling at my mother-in-law's theater and driving up to Williamstown to sort of put everything in my mind. And, you know, one of the, one of the you know, cornerstones that I used was, well, my mother-in-law runs a theater. She runs a theater. She had not been trained to run a theater. She was running a very successful theater, the Bay Street Theater out in uh, Sag Harbor. And I thought, okay. You know, I've got that. I, I can walk in with a certain certain level of confidence that, you know, she can run it. I think – and I presented myself as, you know, I can do this. And they really gave me a one-year contract until they were able to find someone better. That was the, the gist of the conversation. A, a real vote of confidence. Yeah, no, no, no. It was, but, but it was real because I was coming in. It was highly unusual for a stage manager. I didn't fit the profile of running a theater at all. As you, know, as you know, stage managers don't normally follow that path. Which includes fundraising. The, not, I mean, not too many stage that, managers no. raise funds. Exactly. So it was, it was highly unusual. But given all the factors, they were willing to you know, take a roll of the dice on me. And I thought, well, just go for broke. Just you know, throw everything you can at it, and you know, hopefully it'll be successful. And we had a very successful first season, um, mainly because I called upon, I, you know, I called it in as many favors as I could uh, in that first well, season. In your stage management years, yeah. you really worked on extremely high profile, high level yes. productions with with extraordinary right. casts right. and directors. Right. So you you had those you had those resources yeah. at hand. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I begged, borrowed, and pleaded for everyone to come in that first year and and, uh, and also brought a good deal of the family back. So there was a great – I think that first season there was a great interesting mix of the old and the new there. And we were able to cr create um, a sense of an event that first summer. Uh, and it was all built on energy and, and nervousness and excitement and and taking chances. And, and, and for a lot of different reasons, mostly that, that didn't have to do with me. It worked, and so I was hired, you know, long term at Williamstown. And you know, the level of confidence that comes with doing it over and over again, um, and also knowing that you can get past your mistakes, it really starts to inform how you go about, you know, to, uh, doing your job. I mean, you, Howard, have been in about a year in your job, and I'm sure that the leap you made from what you were doing into this particular job. You went through the same sort of process. Well, there's always there's always that learning curve. What's what's always interesting is finding an organization at a certain point in its life and deciding where that organization can or should go. So now 
with this really significant change in the life of Center Theatre Group. I should say one of the things, at least I perceived in the changes that you made at Williamstown, was new plays became ever more prominent. Right. And so what do you think your opportunities are and will that – certainly there have been major new plays coming out of Center Theatre Group for years, yeah. everything from Angels in America to Children of a Lesser God and, and so on. Do you th- – is that something that you want to continue to grow and develop or do in a different way or bring classics back to their repertory which I think have been less over the years? Right. I, I actually really – I think the defining factor out at, at Center Theatre Group and certainly at the taper has been the new plays and, and Gordon's been one of the greatest proponents of that. In fact, when he was – if there were any kind of rep companies back when he was starting – you know the, the the theater back in sixty seven sixty eight. They were really devoted to the classics. So he reinvented how you went about presenting theater with the new plays, and certainly how you developed new plays, and, and was very successful at it. So I've inherited that, and that's part of the mission. I am hoping to throw in more of a mix of of the classics, and even to uh, for that particular audience or for that. Um, those particular theaters to expand the the style of theaters, the, uh, the style of theater that we do. I'll, you know, I'll go How to more movement that? based um, theater. I think I want to explore that a little more international work. Um, certainly more musicals than have been out, out, there, out there in the past. I also think that there's a great laboratory there. It's where one of the the largest theaters with one of the the greatest amount of resources across the board, both financially and, and intellectually in place. We also have probably the most diverse audience base available um, and also very large um, potential audience as well as you know an, an actual audience. Then I think we have the opportunity to experiment a little bit about how theater is produced and presented out there. And as I said earlier, I think we can look at a lot of these smaller companies and in fact become an umbrella for them and really do a service to the field. And in fact, these these companies that have all the talent and the energy and the youth um, to create great theater, they don't have a lot of the resources we have. Well, certainly a couple of years ago in what was a, a wonderful stroke uh, – Gordon invited uh, Deaf West to bring Big River on to uh, I believe it was the taper stage Mm -hmm. and that launched it to Roundabout and and its success here in New York and now touring around the country. And we're actually bringing it back to the Amundsen. It's one of those great success stories that we can actually see this great loop for it. But you you were talking about audiences and communities and one of the challenges – is there is such ethnic diversity right. in Los Angeles, and I know there have been initiatives and may still be ongoing initiatives, but can you speak to both the existing efforts and, and desires to speak to certainly the Asian community, the sure. Latino community, the African-American community in what is you know just as much of a melting pot as, as New York has thought of? Well, you know, as with any large organization or any, any cultural institution in any of these cities, you have um, both the opportunity uh, to address these variety of, of, of audiences, but it's also a part of your mission. And it's not only to um, to grow your audience. There's, there's certainly a marketing element towards looking out as, as diverse an audience as you can get. But there is a service to the community and a service to the field. That's uh, that's part of your mission, and, and Center Theater Group has um, right now these these sort of these these satellite or offshoots uh, we call the labs that are devoted specifically um, towards the, the the Asian playwrights, the Black playwrights, Latino playwrights, and and uh, and, and we work through the, those particular labs to, to try to develop works that will speak. To, 
that will give us a broader sense to our general audience of um, the amount of cultural opportunities that are out there, but also to bring new audiences in. So we're looking at those labs, and they've been around for about 15 or 20 years. And when they were created, they really were unique in the theater community um, in terms of how you create plays. We're looking at those labs right now to make sure that they're the best way to serve both the artists but also the audience in bringing these works to, 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 to life. Um, we may find that they're the best possible way to do it, but the, with, the, with the lab heads and with the staff out there, we're saying, well, you know, Gordon invented so many different ways of creating theater. He, he really built the template for how theater is done, institutional or nonprofit theater in, in the country. Let's keep that going. Let's not just sit here and, 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 and presume that we're doing everything right, but let's have that ongoing conversation. So maybe five years from now, we'll have come up with a new idea. And, and certainly the idea of you know, commissioning and, and workshopping plays, virtually every major theater does that now. Well, we who live and work in New York tend to be somewhat chauvinistic. We think that New York As is – As was a, I for the longest time. <laughs> New York is the center of the universe, the yes. center of the theater I'm less universe. so now. <laughs> Broadway, off-Broadway being mm-hmm. the center of theater. When you I, were – during your tenure at, uh, at Williamstown, you brought five shows to Broadway right. and ten to off-Broadway. Right. At Williamstown, how important was that? And in your new role, how important will it be to transfer shows from your theater right. – to New York, to Broadway. Uh, at Williamstown, it was very important to me to do that. There was there was something about the the shows we were doing there that I I felt that they um, were of a quality that they deserved a wider audience. Uh, the, the vast majority of the the off Broadway plays that we brought in were done on our Nico stage, which is a hundred seat theater and fifteen performances. So you're talking about a total of about 1,500 people able to see it. And when you start giving away staff tickets, that, you even cut that down to about 1,300. Which, so is, about, which is about one night in the Broadway theater. Right, exactly. So that, you know, I, I certainly thought that in developing those plays that I had a mission. And, 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 and I had said to these playwrights, I, I'm going to develop your play so that it can move on. Um, so that was very important to me. Also, I thought that in terms of the, you know, the Broadway productions, they were very high quality and deserved a wider audience. Um, I'm less convinced that that's necessarily the mission out at the Center Theater Group. Uh, and, and, you know, we have an audience base of about 20 million out there. Uh, certainly I would like to do shows out there that are so good that they demand a wider audience. And in particular, we'll be choosing some shows specifically for that pre-Broadway runs. We'll, you know, we'll say this is, you know, we're gearing this specifically for that. Uh, but I think it will shift a little bit for me out there. It will be much more focused on Los Angeles and uh, I would like to see the Santa Theater Group really be a portal for the world of theater, for our audience out there, whether it's you know, passing them through us to, to, to the theater world or passing the theater uh, through to them. And uh, I'd like a much greater mix of the producing, the presenting, the developing, the international, the styles of theater out there, that we can really give them the entire palette of theater. Well, having been involved now at Williamstown for eight or nine years mm-hmm. and now going to Center Theater Group, which is a major institution on the West Coast, you certainly have a unique uh, position to see theater in America in general. Mm-hmm. What's your outlook on regional theater, theater in general, not specifically your theater, right. but just in general around America, outside uh, of Broadway and right. outside of New York City? Uh, extremely strong and, and, and extremely interesting and, uh, and, and I think very vibrant right now. And I think that there are probably a lot of the, the, the leaders and the staffs out there that are going through the same thought process that I'm going through right now in that – 
we have in, in some ways almost perfected this model of how to present theater. We all have our subscription bases. We have our, you know, year-round theaters. We are, you know, uh, major cultural institutions. We have an effect on the community. We know how to fundraise. We know how to develop plays. We know how to move plays in and out of New York. Uh, so I think that maybe there's an eagerness right now to explore how we go about it uh, right now. And I certainly know a lot of the artistic directors around the, the, the country and, and have met more in, in, in the past year since taking this job. But I think it's really strong. And I think that in most of these communities, they get the sense that these theaters are really important to the vibrancy and the life of their, of, of their cities and, and, and towns. They, it, they really matter. So you find a great deal of support out there. And you see that in increasing over the years, do you think? One would building? hope. I think there's, you know, there's always the fear that the audience is, is dying off. I mean, you, know, it's, you can go into any theater, Broadway or not, uh, you know, in any institutional theater, and you generally see an older white audience. You see people in their 60s and 70s um, as the main you – know, the, the bulk of your audience. So there is that fear out there that that was an audience that was trained to go to the theater back in the, the 30s, 40s and 50s and they'll eventually die off. What I'm starting to see as I look around is that there's a mix of introducing theater to a younger audience. We're all doing that youth programming, trying to catch them – you know, eight, nine years old, in their teens, in their early 20s. But what I'm finding is that there are a lot of people that are discovering theater in their 40s and 50s. I think that's where our greatest audience base is. Um, the people that have the disposable income, that um, they have the free time as their kids are going off to college or their kids no longer need them at home every night. Uh, and, and they're looking for something that, that, that matters to them. So I think we're, that's where we'll gain our greatest part of our audience immediately uh, is people in their 40s and 50s. So I do see the theater being strong through the years. And there's always the question of you know, how relevant is it? What are we speaking to? Are we being entertaining? Are we speaking to social issues? What's the mix? Uh, how do you get an audience? How do you hold them? How do you make it important in their lives? And I think we're all going through the, the, the same issues right now. But yeah, I see theaters being strong 20 years from now. But there, I, isn't, there is a national challenge that's going on. You, know, you mentioned subscription. I think most of the theaters around the country uh, will tell you – will say overall that subscriptions are down. We're dealing with yes. people buying last minute, spur of the moment. Broadway has seen smaller advances sure. and certainly subscription right. bases. In Connecticut where I worked, you're looking at theaters that have half the subscription bases they did 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I don't know what the situation has been out at Center Theater Group. Does that change the way we have to think about what we present if, if everything – Suddenly, it's it's. Are you buying the three course meal, the subscription, or is everything a la carte? And what does that do to you as a producer? Yeah, no, that's uh, it's. Uh, we're struggling with that right now. We actually have a very strong subscription base out there, but it has gone down over the past few years, and we think we're a little behind the curve. As you know, we've seen it three, four, five years ago. Most of the major theaters were seeing uh, their subscriptions fall off, uh, but many of those theaters are holding their audience base, and, you know, as a whole. I think we're all going through that right now. Life is, you know, faster paced now. There are many more opportunities. I have trouble planning next week, much less a year from now. I'm you know, one of the most avid theater goers out there. I, I don't have any subscriptions to anything. I don't ever see myself getting a subscription. I'm trying to sell subscriptions right now, but I myself won't, won't partake of them. So I think what you're going to see is a mix. You know, certainly people that, that, that have the ability and the desire to plan 
in advance will continue to do subscriptions. Or you'll see memberships like Lincoln Center uses where you become a member and you have a little more opportunity on getting in and out of shows. Or you'll see more flexible subscription plans um, that you can start shifting your dates or ordering later or, or, or changing dates. Um, I think our marketing is going to go much more towards the single ticket than the subscribers. And I think that that, again, as I said, you know, we have a laboratory. That's one of the things we're looking at right now is how do you market yourself um, with relevance to an, an audience that isn't necessarily the same kind of audience that existed 10 or 15 years ago? I, th- I think subscriptions will change over the next 10 years. And, and I want to be one of the ones that discovers the best way to solve that that, that problem. I could probably make a pretty good case for the decline of uh, drama and even comedy on television right. uh, with all the reality sure. shows, how there's okay. less of it on television. And what is there is not probably as good as it was even a couple of years right. ago. What correlation, if any, or what uh, inverse relationship, if any, do you think this has with the theater? In other words, will theater get better because television is getting worse? Is there any correlation at all, do you think? Ha, ha. I don't know. You know, I read so many plays and I see so many plays um, over the course of a year that uh, I get a sense that there is a a greatness in the writing that's out there, sometimes solely for entertainment purposes, but that some of the bigger issues and not necessarily, you know, current social issues, but the broader philosophical issues that people go through uh, are being addressed by playwrights out there. And it's a, a forum that you don't necessarily get on television um, in particular, you know, there's there's a time frame that you you have to fill on television and there are the commercial breaks and there are many more restrictions on what you can say or how you say it. And there's also the, 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 the necessity to develop and deliver the biggest mass audience possible. Exactly. And you can be much more tailored in the theater. I, you know, I also find that the um, – there are less restrictions in the theater. The The – in, in every sense, the idea of a theatrical world that you can create, you know, is simply as a, a stool and a spotlight on a stage to something to the, you know, production level of Wicked um, on stage. Uh, and, and everything in between and more uh, makes, the, you know, the possibilities for theater so exciting. As I said, there's even, you know, nonverbal, non-narrative theater out there that you wouldn't put on television or in film that is um, – that's, that's, you know, solely movement-based that is really interesting and exciting. And and I think that's going to draw an audience in, that they won't be getting that. I I guess what I'm really wondering is with the so-called dumbing down of television, with it becoming pandering to the lowest common Mm -hmm. denominator, is that also dumbing down the audience and the audience's expectations? In other words, will the audiences still Uh, be there for good quality theater? I think so. I think so, I, I, you know, and 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 I hope so, right. and, and I hope all of us that have you know the, the opportunity to, to to produce there to keep that in mind. I've always found that uh, never never underestimate your audience. They're they're always much smarter than you think they are, and and uh, much more capable of um, of experience and enjoying things. But as as a note of hope, you know, it's interesting in the television trends, as as we say. There, there's two things that I think of, which is number one, that this year the big phenomenon in television is scripted shows suddenly seem to be back. And of course, for years we've bemoaned the fact that there haven't been comic writers for the stage because they've all been writing sitcoms. And as sitcoms seem to be fewer in number, maybe we'll get them back on stage. One would hope. <laughs> <laughs> or that, they can do both. <laughs> and on that rather optimistic note, 
Mike Ritchie, congratulations for your new position. Looking forward to January 1st, I'll bet. Thank you. I am. Good luck in your new position as the artistic director of the Center Theater Group in Los Angeles, which, of course, includes the Mark Taper Forum, the Amundsen Theater at the Los Angeles Music Center, and the new Kirk Douglas Theater in Culver City. Thank you. And I'll be listening to you on my XM satellite radio. Terrific. (laughs) We we love the plugs. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. I want to remind all of our listeners that these programs and all of the media programs in the American Theater Wing are available as free streaming audio and video from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.